Today's sermon comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Mary Thomas was a single mom raising nine children on one of the roughest west side neighborhoods of Chicago. Seven of her children were boys who were constantly stretching and challenging her authority and patience. One day in 1966, she opened her front door and saw 25 street thugs on her doorstep. They were part of the well-known Vice Lords Gang of Chicago, and they were there to recruit her sons. So she heard their intentions, she dropped her gaze, and she said, okay, just wait a second and she closed the door. When the door opened, those 25 street thugs were staring down the barrel of a loaded shotgun. And she said to them these words, there's only one gang around here, and that's the Thomas gang. And it's with that same fortitude that she ushered each of her nine children to high school graduation. Her youngest child, youngest son, was pro basketball player and Hall of Famer Isaiah Thomas. Now, some things are worth fighting for, aren't they? Some things are worth fighting for. Some things aren't. Every day, you face scenarios. You face situations that beg the question, is this a battle worth fighting? Maybe it's something with your boss at work. Maybe it's something with your children. Maybe it's something with your spouse. 
Maybe it's something with the insurance company or with the auto mechanic or with your doctor. You are faced every day with scenarios and situations that beg that question, is this a battle worth fighting? And if you've lived long enough, you have to learn how to pick the right battles because there's just too many of them in a broken world. In this passage in 1 Timothy, Paul lays out three things that are absolutely 100% worth fighting for. In verse 18, he tells this young pastor, Timothy, to wage the good warfare. Later in his letter, he'll tell him to fight the good fight. So what is worth fighting for? What is worth fighting for? First, your sinful condition. Now you say, why is that worth fighting for? Why is my sinful condition worth fighting for? Well, Paul is responding to what's happening in this church in Ephesus. There are false teachers that have begun teaching very bad doctrine. Basically, they are abusing God's law to say that it's a means to becoming righteous. It's a means to holiness. So they are holding out God's law saying this is attainable, and then they've mixed it with genealogies and myths that we looked at last week, and they said this is attainable. In other words, what they were teaching is that, you know what, you're, you're pretty good. You're actually pretty good, and with enough effort and understanding, you can become even better. You can attain to God's law. You can measure up, and you can enter this new level of spirituality. That's what was being taught in this church. The natural drift of the human heart is to fight for your goodness and your worthiness, not your sinfulness. That is the natural drift of the human heart, is to fight for your goodness, to fight for your worthiness, not for your sinfulness. In other words, the natural drift of the human heart is to fight for how good you are, not how bad you are. And that's what was happening in this church. How does Paul respond to these teachers? Well, he fights for his sinful condition. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. He's referring there to his conversion when Jesus met him on the Damascus road, when Jesus gave him strength and appointed him to service. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul doesn't mince words about who he was before he met Jesus. He doesn't mince words. In fact, he's not arguing that he's better than these false teachers in Ephesus. He's arguing that he's worse. He says, I was a blasphemer which means saying God isn't God. He rejected Jesus. He rejected God in the flesh. He was blaspheming. 
He was a persecutor. So you take his blasphemous character and now you combine it with physical force issued against people that he thought were violating God's commands and God's will. Then he says he was an insolent opponent. The word insolent means to be a violent insulter. And the word insolent comes from the root word hubris, which means pride. Prideful, arrogant people can oftentimes turn violent on those who oppose them. And that's exactly what Paul had done. He was a frightening, violent enemy. He was a callous, pious, self-righteous, bigoted murderer hell-bent on making sure that this movement of new Christ followers would be extinguished. And on top of all that, it says he acted ignorantly in unbelief, which means that Paul had a massive blind spot. He actually thought he was serving God. He thought he was helping God when he threw these Christians in prison and voted for their death. Some of the most violent human atrocities have been committed by people enforcing religious traditions in in their own light and understanding. And that's what Paul did. Now, you might say, yes, that's who Paul was, but he's met Jesus now. He's in Christ, so certainly now he's a better man. He's better than these false teachers Listen to how Paul describes this sinful condition in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul doesn't say of whom I was the foremost. He says of whom I am, present tense. Paul's not saying, I was the worst of sinners, but now I'm cleaned up and really good. He says, no, I am the worst of sinners, present tense. John Duncan taught Hebrew at New College in Edinburgh, Scotland in the 1800s. He was at a church service where communion was being served. And he was feeling that day very personally unworthy, overwhelmed by his sin, overwhelmed by his guilt. And so when the bread and wine came by, he let them pass. And then he watched this girl in the congregation do the same thing. The elements came by and she let them pass and then she began to weep. And it was that moment of watching her weep where he was reminded of the truth that he had forgotten. And so in a very loud whisper that those in the congregation could hear around, he said to her, he said, take it, take it. It's meant for sinners. And then he himself partook. Augustine in 400 AD said this, My sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. Even 
if you don't fight for your sinful condition, then you will begin to think really well of yourself and really good of yourself. You'll begin to excuse sin or to justify it. If you don't fight for your sinful condition, you will think yourself good and you will no longer need Jesus. That's why I believe that one of the devil's primary tactics is to convince you that you're good. Because if the devil can convince you that you're good, then you don't need Jesus anymore. Fighting for your sinful condition is necessary. It's a must. Why? Because if you embrace your sinful condition, it leads you to the second truth that is worth fighting for. And that is the grace of Christ. It's the grace of Christ. Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul said in verse 13, he had received mercy. That means that he didn't get what he deserved. He deserved the judgment of God. He didn't get it. Now he talks about the grace he has received. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, which means that Paul received the righteousness of Christ. When the scripture says that Christ came into the world to save sinners, that means that he took death in your place. That's mercy. You don't get what you deserve, which is death. And he extends grace, which means you get his righteousness his perfect record, though you don't deserve it. That's what it means to receive mercy and grace. That's what it means to be saved by Christ. He takes death for you. He gives you his righteousness. That's mercy and that's grace. But note here what Paul says about this grace. Paul says, it overflowed for me. It overflowed. That means abundance. There was an artist who submitted to an exhibition one time a painting of Niagara Falls. But when he submitted it, he didn't put a title on the painting. And so the gallery gave the painting a whimsical title, More to Follow. More to Follow. With God's grace, there is always more to follow. Martin Luther says this about the overflowing nature of God's grace. Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light and could indeed light up 10 worlds, just as 100,000 lights might be lit from one light and not detract from it, just as a learned man is able to make a thousand others learn, and the more he gives, the more he has, so is Christ our Lord, an infinite source of all grace. So that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the world all angels, 
yet it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over full of grace. You say, is that, is that really true? Romans 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is more than enough grace to cover your sin. The question is why? Why? Why is there more than enough grace to cover your sin? Because the overwhelming or the overflowing grace of Christ is born out of his character. The overflowing grace of Christ flows out of who he is. Out of his character. And what is the character of Christ? Verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's conversion story is to be an example of the perfect patience of Jesus Christ. Now, when you think of the attributes of Christ, is patience one of them? Because patience is actually one of God's signature attributes or characteristics. In the Old Testament, we see it with the, the refrain over and over, slow to anger, slow to anger. That's patience. It's spoken of in Romans 3.25, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation just means a wrath-removing sacrifice to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, that's patience, in his divine patience, he had passed over former sins. Now, what does it mean that he passed over former sins? That does not mean that God just swept sin under the carpet. It means that he stored up his righteous wrath against it. Like water that is building behind a dam. That's what was happening in the Old Testament. Because if you read it, there was plenty of sin. And so God's wrath was being stored up, stored up behind this dam until Jesus hung on the cross, at which point God destroyed the dam and the, the flow of wrath came down on his beloved son instead of you and me. Now, the reason I, I think this is so important to get is because one of the stereotypes of God, kind of one of the just more common general stereotypes of God is that he's, he's capricious. He's an, he's an angry God. He's got a quick trigger. He loses his temper. And yet, if you read the entire Old Testament as a whole, and don't cherry pick stories here and there, but you read it as a whole. What you're left with at the end is how in the world do his people, Israel, how are they still standing? 
After all their sin, all their rebellion, all their lack of gratitude, all their whining, all their complaining, that's the Old Testament. And yet they're still standing. Why? Because God's patient. And he didn't sweep their sin under the carpet. He just stored up his wrath so that it could be poured out on his son Jesus instead of his children. God is slow to anger. Christ is perfectly patient. In 1918, in Tokyo, Japan, Tokichi Ishii was sentenced to death. He was guilty of murder, numerous murders. He was a renowned criminal, renowned murderer. He was an angry man. He was a hated man. He himself hated. In fact, when he was in prison, awaiting the sentence, his anger and his hatred flowed out in his attack of a prison guard. And as a result of him attacking the prison guard so violently, he was bound, he was gagged, he was hung from the ceiling with his toes barely touching the ground. Prior to being sentenced to death, he was given a New Testament by two missionaries a Miss West, and a Miss, a Miss McDonald. And that was the beginning of what would result in him coming to know Jesus Christ. And as he was in prison, as he was sentenced to death, after coming to Christ, he said that was a fair punishment for what he had done. His death sentence was a fair punishment. And as he was being visited by Miss West, she directed him to read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 through 10, which deal with, with suffering. And there's a particular phrase in that, in that passage that, that Tokachi had really rested on and, and come to grips with. And it was a line that says, poor, yet making many rich. And he wrote this, this referring to that poor yet making many rich. This certainly does not apply to the evil life I led before I repented. But perhaps in the future, someone in the world may hear that the most desperate villain who ever lived repented of his sins and was saved by the power of Christ and so may come to repent also. Then it may be that though I am poor myself, I shall be able to make many rich. Tokachi died on the scaffold in great humility, and his last words were, my soul purified today returns to the city of God. Now here's the question. What kind of posture does Christ's overflowing grace and perfect patience produce? And by posture, I'm going to speak of just two postures. A lean-in posture and a lean-back posture. Lean-in, lean-back. I just recently heard a, just a sad story of a young girl who was at her mother's mother and stepdad's house. 
Her mother had divorced. She had remarried and remarried. They had just had a baby. And this girl was, you know, late elementary school. And one day before dinner, she said to her mom, and potentially in maybe the not most respectful tone, she said, Mom, I'm feeling left out. Ever since this baby's been born, no one's been giving me any attention. All the attention is going to this baby. This was a subtle cry for help from this girl. She was sent to her room without dinner. That is a lean back posture. My arms are crossed and I'm going to lean back until you give me a reason to lean forward. Now, some of you may have grown up in that kind of environment where all the posture you saw was arms crossed, lean back. You better do something that will cause me to lean forward to you. And so when you hear of the shocking posture of Christ, which is a lean-in posture, it may be hard for you to swallow. But this passage says that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Not people who had earned his, his presence or his eye, but sinners. Jesus Christ is sitting on the edge of his seat, so to speak, leaning forward, eager to save you. Jesus loves your neediness. He loves it. The lean back posture has no room for neediness. Jesus' posture is, I love your neediness. I love when you cry to me for help. And when you cry for help and you receive his salvation, he empowers you to then have a lean-in posture to others. A lean-in posture of grace and of patience, albeit imperfect. What is worth fighting for? Number one, your sinful condition. Number two, the grace of Jesus Christ. And number three, a good conscience. A good conscience. Now, this provides the balance in the passage because you could say, I'm going to embrace my sinful condition. I'm going to receive the grace of Christ, and I'm a mess, and I'm just going to keep on sinning so that grace may be increased. Like, I just don't just, that's just who I am. I'm a sinner, Christ is gracious, so I'll just keep on sinning. No, that's not where Paul ends this chapter. It's not where he ends the chapter. He ends it in a, in a much different place, verses 18 to 19. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them meaning the prophecies, God's promise and assurance, 
you may wage the good warfare holding faith in a good conscience. How do you wage the good warfare? How do you fight the good faith, the, the good fight? By holding faith and a good conscience. That both are necessary. Right? It's necessary to hold to the objective deposit of the faith. That just means the content of what you confess and believe. That's doctrine, set of beliefs. But you also need the, the subjective treasure of a good conscience. Right? You, you need them both. I said last week, as we looked at the beginning of the chapter, that doctrine is dynamically connected to how you live. In other words, what you believe will determine how you live. But here we learn that the inverse is also true, that how you live can affect what you believe. That how you live can affect what you believe. That a good conscience is key to maintaining faith. Now, how, how do we know that? Look at verse 19. By rejecting this, you say, what does the this refer to? Well, in the original language that the New Testament's written in, which is Greek, this is connected or refers to a good conscience. So by rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Their faith is speaking of the faith, the content of the faith. And the reason we know this is because Paul goes on to name two men. One of them is Hymenaeus, who shows up in the second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 to 18. And there he is said to swerve from the truth by saying that the resurrection has already happened. That's not referring to the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection of the dead. And so Hymenaeus, by rejecting his conscience, which means his, his morality slipped, how he was living was in violation of what he knew, as he rejected his conscience, his doctrine started to fall apart. What he believed started to fall apart. Paul says that both of these men were handed over to Satan. What's that mean? Well, it's the same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 5, referring to an excommunication. Simply means that these men were removed from the membership of the church, but the goal was for restoration, that they would see the seriousness of where they were at, the danger of where they were at, and would repent and turn to Christ. When you repeatedly sin against your conscience, you are in danger of shipwrecking your faith and killing your spiritual life. Now you say, what, what is conscience? What do we mean by that? There may be a thought pattern or an attitude that no one else can detect that you are free to nourish at the expense of your conscience. And so when you repeatedly, repeatedly reject your conscience, 
you're in danger of shipwrecking your faith. Right? That what you believe determines how you live, but the inverse is also true. How you live can affect what you believe, can affect your faith, can affect your doctrine. One of the early martyrs of the English Reformation was Hugh Lattimore. He was burned to death in 1555 uh, for refusing for refusing to back down on his beliefs in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a martyr. He stood firm on what he believed about Jesus Christ. He wouldn't back down, and so he was burned at the stake. The Archbishop of Canterbury, his name was Thomas Cranmer, was forced to watch Hugh Latimer burn to death. And as he watched him burn to death, and after much pressure, Cranmer signed a bunch of recantations, which simply means that he signed a bunch of papers that were against what he knew and believed about Jesus Christ, and he did it out of fear. He wanted to save his life. About a year later, when Cranmer was being brought up for execution, he had regained his, his, his courage. And so he, he regained his courage instead of repeating and affirming his recantations. He rejected them. He boldly affirmed the truth about Jesus Christ. He didn't back down. Why? Listen to what he said. And now I come to the great thing which so much troubles my conscience more than anything that I ever did or said in my whole life, and that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now here I renounce and refuse as things written with my hand, contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death and to save my life. If it might be, and forasmuch as my hand has offended Writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall be first to be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall first be burned. And the next day, when Thomas Cranmer was brought to the stake to be burned, he unwind, and just without any hesitation put his right hand in the fire and let it burn until it was a cinder before any of his body was injured. What power there is in faith and a clear conscience. What power there is, right, in holding to faith and a clear conscience. Why is your sinful condition, the grace of Christ, and a good conscience worth fighting for? because it's your only hope to stay the course. It's your only hope to persevere until Christ returns or until he calls you home. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things that we fight for some that are worth it, some that aren't. 
Thank you for your word that gives us truths that we must fight for on a daily basis. Father, by your spirit, would you empower us to embrace our sin, to not run from it, to not hide it, to not minimize it. That's the natural drift of our heart, that we would embrace our sin, not our goodness, but our sinfulness. And Father, would you, would you not let us wallow in the guilt and the shame of our sin, but as we embrace it, would you help us to stand underneath the, the overflow, the waterfall of Christ's grace. That we would be a people of grace. Jesus, would we believe that your posture is lean in? That you're eager to save us, that you love our neediness, that you, you love our cries for help. And Father, by your spirit, would you give us a clear conscience that if there are things that we're harboring, thoughts or patterns or attitudes that we are nourishing, that spirit, you would bring conviction that we return to the waterfall of your grace, Christ, and find life. And Father, as we come to this meal in a little bit, would we drink of the grace that you give us through the Lord's Supper? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.